In the dark of the woods, she heard a strange sound, so she screwed up her eyes and peered all around. There were scratches covering the seats. Keep the body. I had Young to help lady. sever the For head God's from sake, the body. Save the body. I saw his jacket lying on the floor. My role in the book, at least, was to carry the bloody head disguised. We'll move on to find another client. I sat down and tried to control my breathing. Come sit beside and he you. rise in bed and it was all with various portions. I had to sever the head from the body. Don't so be warm. Filled with rage. And remember the trolls and the witches behind the Very theatre. Oh, that was marvellous. Oh, no, it isn't. Oh, <laughs> oh yes, it is. Yeah, you see. And we're right that's next the, door to the Empire. That's the wrong time of year. I'm Betty Ball. I'm Stevie B. He's a Mackin. And she's from South Shield. And you are listening to. Whoa. <laughs> I feel like Vincent Price should come along and say it. He's dead. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Speak up, son, in the Halloween It was just whistled. So, happy Halloween. I feel like I'm far too chirpy for this episode. I know. And what a better way to celebrate by sharing spooky stories. Are you excited? I'm a bit scared, actually. Are you? Uh, I would be scared sitting next to me, I have to be honest. Well, that's that's great. So we're actually joined with a fantastic group called Spectral Visions Press, and they are a city of Sunderland born and bred. And we have two, the founders, who are husband and wife, Dr. Alison Younger and Colifin... Colifin? Colifin? Colin Younger, who are lecturers of the University of Sunderland. Hello. Hello. I have to admit, your makeup is... Phenomenal! You remind me massively of, of uh, oh, Morticia Adams. <laughs> oh, her, sorry. Funnily enough, my nickname at school was Wednesday Adams. I'm Wednesday. just a much older now. <laughs> you look amazing. Thank you, you really, very much. Really I was scared of Wednesday as well. I have a face for radio. <laughs> I've heard that one before. Yeah, so uh, right. Okay, start from the beginning. How did you two meet, and how did this? Lovely organisation come about. How did we meet? How did we meet? Yeah. He, he that's used, going back a long way. Going back a long, long way. He knew my elder brother. Went to my mum's house and said, "Do you have any daughters?" Because he wanted to marry an Irish girl. That was what his attitude was. My mum said, "Are you a Catholic?" And that was the whole. <laughs> yep. And I asked so. for a photo, and the photo passed. I actually went up to where Alison was and said, "Could you please get Alison, Melia, and tell her a boyfriend's outside?" you little sliders. Yeah, and I came downstairs and said, who the F are you? (laughs) (laughs) That was it, basically. That's how we met. But how did Spectral Visions come about? Yeah. We run the MA, the Masters, and I had this idea. I went to the head of department and said, I want to put on gothic master classes for all the students, all the kids in Sunderland. And he said, yeah, I think we can handle that and handle that. And on the day, 600 students turned <laughs> up and we dressed up and we, we did all kinds of stuff and we did it again and again. Then we realised that we had students who just had such immense talent and they wanted to write, Gothic is sexy, Gothic is everything. Gothic is all over the place. Gothic never stops being sexy, everybody loves it. 
Everybody loves horror films and ghost stories. Our students loved it, and then they wanted to write about it, didn't they? And so you set the press up. So, so it was a kind of place for them to put their work, and it's astonishing. We thought we'd release one compilation of what we had, which turned into Spectral Visions, the... Collection. Was, the collection. Yeah. And we thought that would be it. But then we had another conference and produced another book, and then it started blossoming from there, and now we have about 11 or 12 publications. Well, it's not just the students. We encourage anyone from Sunderland to submit their works. We're very open, and it gets edited, so it's all made lovely mm. when we publish <laughs> it. But, yeah, we, we encourage well, the, the beauty of it is people that to be published. The publishing house grew out of the conferences, and we turned it into a, a module so that the students actually produce the books themselves and so they get editorial practice, they learn to be proofreaders, they do their own typesetting, and they produce the book from start to finish basically and they write a lot of the material in it. Mm -hmm. So when they leave university, they don't just leave with a degree as you would expect to leave university, they also leave with work experience as someone who's worked in a publishing house and also on their CVs they can put their publications. There aren't that many people of that age who have publications in books. So it's a really good first step on the ladder for them. And this is all right in the University of Sunderland. So I actually have one of your novels here. So it's called Grim Fairy Tales. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? I might read a little bit from it yes. after as well. I don't know whether to go really grand guignol or what have you. It's Halloween, so Halloween, the you have darker to. the better, love. Darker the better. We did Spectral Visions of the Collection and then we always put it to the students, what do you want to do? And they said, we want to do kind of really dark fairy tales and, and scary kind of stuff. So we went with that, Grim Fairy Tales. But it's all led by what the students want to do. So everything in here, it's taking the whole kind of idea of the fairy tale and it's blending it with gothic. Because really the only difference between a fairy tale and a gothic tale is the ending. One has a happy ending. <laughs> in one, they all live happy ever after. And in another one, it's like... You don't. <laughs> we don't want any of that. You must be like really, really proud dark Parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that sounded like, good and bad, didn't it? I brought my lecturer from when I were when I were a lass. So there's the dark, proud Welsh granny sitting in the corner who's going to come and read as well. I'll read. I'll read. This was a kind of comedy dark poem that I wrote and then we'll get them up because Colin and I've written a series of I really couldn't read them on here. You the boys know of two of two um Sweary boys. From two Sunderland. sweary boys. They're yeah. two boys from Sunderland. One accidentally kills his brother by throwing a can of vase lager at him and he falls over a coffee table and smashes his head and just they cannot be read out in public. <laughs> so, the tale of Red Riding Blood. There once was a girl with a hood that was red who embarked on a trip to see Grandmama fed. Don't stray from the path or you could end up dead shrilled her mother, a crabbed old dear. Red gave her a look. She wasn't impressed and turned on her heel, feeling suitably dressed. Then she held up her chin and stuck out her chest and marched to the forest, devoid of all fear. In the dark of the woods, she heard a strange sound, so she screwed up her eyes and peered all around. Young lady, come sit beside me on the ground, said the vulpine assassin, his jaws in a leer. 
She took it all in, her heart starting to race, and quick as a flash she smashed in his face with a wrench that she kept in her killer's tool case, lodged deep in her basket, should victims appear. For our little Red was not what she seemed, her wild acts of carnage could not have been dreamed by her gran or her ma, whose head she had steamed after cutting her throat with a knife. In fact, in the basket, the head bobbed about, midst the tools of her trade to slice, slash and clout those who crossed on her path when she was let out of the cage she was kept in, the murderous fiend. As she warmed to her task, the wolf howled in pain. With her sharpest of knives, she exposed his wolf brain and licked on the blade, using blood to sustain her energies, frenzied and wild. Then she opened his belly and pulled out his liver, unable to stop a delectable shiver as his entrails fell out and slid in the river, which ran red with blood by the murderous child. Then she flogged him and flayed him and danced in his blood, till perchance a good hunter appeared in the wood and rushed, as he thought, to her aid, meaning good to save what he thought was a child. Too late. When he noticed the glint in her eyes, she'd hobbled him quite with a club to his thighs and smiled at her craft at the look of surprise on his fast-dying face with his own axe defiled. Her blood lust unsated, she sauntered to grand, the remains of her victims ensconced in two cans, and kicking the door in, she snatched two large pans to cook up a sumptuous meal. And in went Ma's head. She deserved the first place. Then neatly arranged around Mama's face were bits of the wolf and fingers, a brace from the huntsman so recently dead. Then into the bedroom, she skipped with great glee and throttled her granny, a kindness, thought she, before she embarked on extreme butchery and mopped up the blood with some bread. Her mother consumed the carcasses chewed, her work for the day quite smugly reviewed. It served the wolf right, she thought. He was lewd. And as ever the dutiful daughter, she cleaned up her knives and her cudgels and flails and left them to steep in two washing pails. For the slattern, she thought, invariably fails, there is a decorum for slaughter. If this tale has a moral, it might as well be, don't stray from the path, or you may well just see a girl in wolf's clothing, or skin, for you see, there's nothing as plain as it seems, for a hood that is red could be covered in gore, and that sweet little house with the fairy tale door could well be a charnel house. Under the floor, the spoils of the killer. Now, don't have bad dreams. <laughs> Absolutely phenomenal. Clapping myself, I'm a narcissist. <laughs> Where's me vodka? <laughs> I think I need a vodka after that. Publish some of your work with us. Get in touch. Give us your work and we'll publish it. I have it. a feeling there's no boundaries with your creative writing. Is there anything you've ever been given to and you've just went, what? Tell you what, we, we're currently in a situation where Anthony and another one of our PhD students and Colin are actually editing for a journal called Revenant. This is the strangest thing I've ever done. I really don't like Jane Austen. Fair? She's a, no, I can't bear it. She's a moralist. I can't be doing with all of this. They're editing a, a journal on zombies. And, of course, as the PhD supervisor, I felt duty-bound to do something for the journal on zombies. 
because I work in the 19th century, and I'm, I'm actually writing a book so on Gothic. So she's a time traveller, you see. So she works in the 19th century. So she's century, a witch and a time traveller. Witch and a time traveller. She lives most of the time in the 21st um, century. I'm writing a book on Gothic masculinities, <laughs> and I thought, well, what can I write on zombies? I can't write anything on zombies. And to my great embarrassment, I'm just about finished writing an article on Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice and the Zombies. So that's probably the weirdest thing I've ever... But the weirdest thing I think that you ever did was because Colin does a lot of his work on the Border Reavers and Northern writers, and he found some unseen and unheard of Sunderland poems and Sunderland short stories in, in, in archival research, including one that actually refutes the notion that Bonnie Prince Charlie went over the sea to Skye. He actually went over the sea from Ashbrook in Sunderland. No, it was actually Hendon he went Hendon. from. Hendon, oh yeah, mm-hmm. Hendon Docks. And, yeah. and this, this, this lovely little story called No Greater Love places the whole young pretender and Flora MacDonald... As two separate as characters. Two se- she's the love interest as opposed to his kind of dressy-up moment. And a brownie. In Hendon Docks. Not the little cakes, you know, a a little character. A little fairy. Hilarious bits of poetry and things. That's some wonderful stuff. But some, interestingly enough, and in all honesty, I mean, I heard you talking about the rich literary culture of the region. The sea shanties, the Keelman songs, the poems and the stories that were written in this region which is, they're astonishing, and it's a great shame that they haven't been circulated more. But they're going to be. But they're going to be, they're going to be. I did a talk a couple of years ago on witchcraft in Sunderland and the fact that there was a witch called Old Mally, because there was quite a large Irish community in Sunderland. The first ever Irish dancing troupe in the UK started in Southwick. <laughs> Can you believe that? And there was this witch and the keelman wouldn't go out without her in the boat. She sat in the front of the boat and they said she'd have fair weather. They'd always have fair weather if she was with them. And so they would pay her to go out in the boat and she lifted curses. I'm really saddened about it that, that there is this hugely rich culture around here. First ever exorcism as well. There was an exorcism that took place in Sunderland of a young woman, Elizabeth, she was called. And I really admire what you do because I think these are things that deserve to be brought into the public eye. What has Sunderland, the city, brought to your literature and how have you taken the history and brought it out? We did a talk on Thursday at Donison School, you know, the name? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing people in Donison School. We were absolutely blown away. We're going to write them into a story, aren't we? We really are, because they're so astonishing. There was a 90-year-old guy there. We were talking about the Victoria Hall disaster and he said, I saw that, you know, and I said, what? And he said, I was walking past it with Father and I was like, no, you're kidding me. When it was blown up, you meant when it was during blown the Second up, World yeah. War. For us, it just opened our eyes to a, a whole load of stuff. But we went down and we did a talk on music hall in Sunderland. I love popular culture. The music hall in Sunderland, there were so many people around here. Champagne, Charlie, Stan Laurel, all on the Sunderland stage. Dion Boussico, one of the most famous Victorian actors, cut his teeth on the Sunderland stage, you know, Queen Victoria's favourite actor. One of the ladies in the room said to us, oh, did you know there was this famous music hall actor? And there's an unknown poem that I found in the bottom of a drawer. 
also about the Victoria Hall disaster, and I thought all of these gems just are lying, lying there, somewhere. Waiting to be uncovered. They're just waiting to be uncovered. Newcastle, the border regions, all of these things have had huge amounts of investment. They've had huge amounts of ideas. And Sunderland's like a kind of golden egg just waiting to kind of open. And all of this stuff is there to be found. And we're kind of finding it, aren't we? Yeah, we're doing our best. You're finding the dark side and it's incredible. I have to say, there's a great line in, in Shakespeare where Oberon says about Puck, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. And I've got to say, that is true of Alison. I'm afraid <laughs> I have to take responsibility for how she's turned out, but not necessarily as a goth. <laughs> so what you're saying is it's your fault? Then? I think it is my fault. I get blamed for everything, so I'm quite happy <laughs> well, to I'm take it. Well, I'm not going to lie, she's absolutely marvellous. They're both marvellous. Good. Good. Happy Halloween, everyone. Now it is your turn, the Welsh witch. The Welsh uh, wizard, I think. Wizard, sorry, the Welsh wizard. So you taught Alison. I'm afraid so, yes. So how does it feel when you see her do her thing? She was great fun to teach. And I think seeing her develop, seeing her expertise, seeing her authority, seeing the sheer pleasure she gets from things. She was always very enthusiastic about literature and uh, just great fun to teach. I suppose the more irreverent side the take-me-as-you-find-me side is probably my inheritance. <laughs> it's probably come from me. It's great to see her doing so well, and it's great to see our students doing so well. I was at Sunderland University last year when Colin broke his leg and Alison said, can you come in and do the Renaissance course? And it was just a joy to teach them, and you could see the enthusiasm they'd experienced from her having taught them the previous year. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a joy. Lovely. So now you're going to share with us some of your poetry and your findings. This is one of a kind of series of poems that I've been doing. I've been looking at some of the, the women that appear in classical and biblical literature. Shall we say giving them an alternative voice? Oh, very nice. And this particular one uh, is about the killing of Holofernes by Judith in the Bible. All right. It's a really nasty story. And in the Bible, it's kind of, it's a bit of political propaganda. We don't find out how she feels about it. And there are lots and lots and lots of paintings of her as well, which some feminists say, oh, it's a strong woman against a vicious man, which it is. But what I want to look at is, from the point of view of Judith's handmaid, who the Bible writes out, needless to say, what kind of experience it might have been like for them. In other words... It's a, it's a challenge to the Bible, it's a challenge to the artists, it's about creating moral ambiguity. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm good on moral ambiguity. <laughs> okay, it's called The Handmaid's Tale. A handmaid, naturally, I am nameless in the book, useful solely for carrying a basket on my head, filled with oil and wine, provisions for my mistress, coal for her eyes, essences for me to massage her body. She shudders when my fingertips touch her back. I beautify her ready for seduction, for deception, as mad Holofernes drinks her in with copious draughts of heady wine. Of course I am written out of the action in the book. There she alone adorns herself, while I am sent outside his tent to keep watch, passive, as if she could train her own hair, anoint the softness of her skin with perfumed oils, knead her yielding flesh, rub warmth into her muscles to release her ruthless strength. I disappear. She is the heroine wielding the weapon, 
the blade so sharp it decapitates neatly. But I was there, witness and participant. Dulled by drink, he was, nonetheless, a huge sinewy victim. I struggled to hold him down as he awoke, horror in his eyes as he felt the wounding. Incredulous, he thrashed in frustration as she hacked and sawed at his neck. He writhed in pain till it was over. I had to help sever the head from the body. It was disgusting. Exhausted, ensanguined, we fled the carnage. My role in the book, at least, was to carry the bloody head, disguised, swaddled in cloth, back in a basket on my head to Bethulia. This is how Botticelli imagined me, trailing behind the glamorous heroine, spotless both. His face, expressionless, perched jauntily upon my head. Solemn, she bears his sword discreetly in one hand, its blade unstained. Modest but dignified, she turns her face to me like some goddess or Madonna. It looks as if we're out for a stroll. Other artists showed me present for the act, sometimes assisting while the streams of gore splash furiously from the Assyrian's neck, his face distorted by impotent rage. Blood spattered, the tent has become a charnel house, while we remain unsullied by shooting spurts and gouts of violent red staining the scene. I am depicted variously, sometimes an aged crone, sometimes viewed from behind one of two mature women, ruthlessly engaged or cold, or else her young accomplice, co-conspirator in the bold plan to dupe the Assyrian host. Judith, heroic saviour of her people, bareheaded, focused on her grisly task. Always my head is covered, swathed in cloth, set ready to receive its grotesque weight. I am anonymous. She, centre stage, as she concentrates, commits the desperate act, the deep plunge of her cleavage emphasising the roundness of her breasts, voluptuousness, sometimes nakedness. Supporting cast, I help fill the frame. The handmaid, complicit, dexterous, and there. Enigmatic, not mine the indignity of fantasies. I don't suffer the male gaze. For her, it was a kind of crusade, though we never spoke of it. The book tells it as a triumph, murder disguised as grim necessity, all fair in love and war. A woman using womanly wiles, victorious. Artists, epicures of violence, fascinated by the woman who, undeterred, performs an act of butchery, invite you to become voyeurs. In reality, it was horrible, then and afterwards. We knew what we were doing was morally repugnant, but did it anyway. Our thoughts? Don't ask. We don't create the narrative. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well. <laughs> well, you know, she's, she's represented so often in art, and she's always represented as this attractive, voluptuous woman, you know, taking on the murderous Holophanes. And you've got to think, well, these women actually commit this act of violence, which is highly brutal, very savage. What kind of feeling does it arouse in them? I'm not offering a suggestion of what it is. I'm just suggesting there may be ambiguities that 
we don't understand. I don't want to go to sleep tonight. It's funny, actually, because I sent Alice, she said, will you do a few? She seems to think I've got a poem in my pocket for every occasion, you know. <laughs> when there's publication coming out for Spectral Visions, we're a few short, can you do a couple? And she chose this one, which was the longest, but possibly the bloodiest, and therefore possibly the most appropriate for a night like tonight, yes. when the spirits oh. come out. On yes. Halloween. Yes, <laughs> on Halloween, on Halloween. So is there any more where that came from? Yeah, there are a few that are going into different publications for Spectral Visions, but uh, I'm putting a collection together as well for Alison to edit. I mean, for years when I was working, I didn't write. But since I kind of like found the joys of retirement, I've started writing again, and uh, we're hoping to put a collection together. The kind of provisional title is possibly going to be something like Heresies and Delinquencies, which says it's all really. Maybe a new take on things and maybe a few delinquent confessions of my uh, interesting life. <laughs> oh, well, that's a completely different podcast. Oh, we don't. We won't go, <laughs> we won't go there. But yes, that, shall we say there's a good rhyme for Venus? Oh, yes. <laughs> Lovely. My name's Ruben Blue, and this is a poem called Monsters Really Exist. Modern monsters do exist. They hide behind the internet, tearing at your flesh. They call themselves friends or people they've met before. Buddy's always there, but the truth be told, it's what they've got in for you that should make you afraid. Disguised as cool people, disguised as those that know everything. But what they really want to do is put you down, put you down, put you in a grave, make you not human. They don't care. They don't even care what level of Dante's hell they sit upon, as long as you're with them holding their hand. So be warned and remember the trolls and the witches that hide behind the screen. Even your words, your very identity can be taken away with a wink of an eye. And the only thing they'll leave you to do is when you see your credit card and your bills have been used by someone else, is make you scream. Because modern monsters do exist. They hide behind the internet. I'm Lizzie Hargraves. I'm reading something written by Reuben Blue called New Gods, Old Monsters. We're finished. You're alive. The sound of bones creaking echoed through the dark theatre. The steel table set up in the centre clicked loudly as it became upright. So breathed deeply, then sighed happily. I feel alive. Slowly, she stepped from the upright table dressed in a white smock, covering her greyish skin. Would you like to see your created body? A tall, masked man in a gown stepped forward, motioning toward one of the few mirrors that hadn't been smashed. Most of my clients hate what they see, but I knew you would like my choice. He pointed at the mirror that had been cleaned of dust and grime. The woman made her way over, stepping slowly as she got used to her new jigsaw-looking body, walking like a child, taking its first steps. Ooh, perfect, the woman said, inspecting her body in the mirror. I hope the scars will go. She fussed with her hair. Can you do that? I want them hidden. 
can arrange that, but it will cost, the man said, typing on the tablet everything she said. Wealth is never the problem. The woman inspected her arms, still pausing in the mirror. Where is it from? Or rather, where am I from? I told you I only wanted fresh parts. Yes, human and fresh, like promised. Good. The woman took a deep breath, watching her new bosom rise. Suddenly her face changed from satisfaction to panic. What's wrong? She put her hand over her heart. Are you sure it's fresh? Not stolen from the graves? Get a chair, the man shouted, sending his hunchback assistant scurrying. The woman trebled, nearly falling. He caught her, luring her gently to the dirty grape floor as she gasped for breaths. The hunchback brought over the wheelchair, checking her pulse before he moved her. You idiot, the man barked to the hunchback, quivering in fear. I bought it from the normal guy. You're sure? You're sure it is a fresh heart, he shouted back. I'm sure she may be rejecting it, the hunchback cried. You lied to me, the woman on the floor, clutching her chest. You promised. Get on the table, quickly. If we get the brain out, and we can get a new body prepped. Oh, really, the man sneered cruelly. And let her live and tell everyone. I'm sorry, he go whimpered at his abuse. He paused, breathed deeply inside. Keep the body. For God's sake, save the body. We'll move on to find another client. Why? Why are you doing this? The woman gasped, filled with rage. Oh, shut up, you conceited, spoiled woman, he snapped. Nobody tried to kill you. Not specifically. It simply isn't in our best interests for clients to live too long in one body. We drum up our own business, you would say. He bent down as she was lifted up onto the table. Terribly sorry about the shoddy service. He smiled a greedy smile. I would say you're going to be a fantastic client, but I really don't think we'll be seeing much return business from you. I can pay more, Dr. Frankenstein. Now we're talking business, Michelle. Oh, can I call you Mary? Where did that come from? Which one? Both. You're married. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wrote both. The Internet Monster one is actually part of a therapy thing I was doing about internet trolls. I suffered a lot of bullying from people on the internet when I started writing. And I found it was more fun to turn them into monsters rather than thinking of them as real people looking at me, you know, these one-eyed, scary, horned creatures, rather than deal them with humans, because that way I can treat them like mythology and forget about them in the morning. So that's what I came up with that one. That's very creative. I really like that. I was very taken aback because I didn't really know what to expect. So when, as the poem went on, I was more intrigued and then... Like you say, your perception of something that's day-to-day -day that happens to Nyon or everyone or it has seen or been done to anyone is quite fascinating. I quite like your brain. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you. You haven't seen his normal Halloween one, which is generally shouting at the audience with fake blood dripping down his arm. No. That was last Halloween. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, no, last Halloween was me dressed as Donald Trump shouting at the world is all over. Oh, yeah, that, sorry, that was last <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> it was Halloween before I was thinking yeah. of. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're a fan of Donald Trump then? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of abusing my members of audience. Oh, yeah? yeah. Okay, right. <laughs> I'm glad I'm sat on this, on this side of the chair. One thing I, I will say, I, I don't 
read or listen to a lot of poetry, but when I do hear it, my opinion for when I heard your two was, I see pitches instantly, straight away. Yeah, that's... So when you're describing it, there's pitches there instantly for me. Well, to me, I never saw it as poetry originally, I saw it as spoken word. I started off doing it in London in support for bands, punk gigs and things like that. I'd stand on the street and do poetry sometimes at Christmas just to remind people about the homeless and things. It is getting that message across, but I always saw it as spoken word. It wasn't until I went to university and started a BA that I realised what I actually was writing was poetry. Mm. Then I got the guts up to get my first book out and I've got another two coming out this year and next year, so I've done Excellent. well. Excellent. And the other poem, tell us a little bit more about that one. Where did that one come from? I was trying to reimagine what Frankenstein would like to do in the 21st century and I actually saw him as a kind of plastic surgeon for the rich and instead of creating monsters, he was creating yuppie monsters, the, you know, people who would rather let somebody else die so they could be beautiful and live on and take over someone else's body so he's actually removing the brain from one body and putting it in a more beautiful body I thought the added twist was adding Mary Shelley's name at the end of the story you know can I call it that was just very good it was we may be describing the plot of Rejuvenator yeah we we watch a lot of horror films (laughs) I I can't believe that yeah yeah I can't surely (laughs) favourite horror horror film Uh, for me uh, Reanimator and uh, Return of the Living Dead (laughs) Mm. I I hate zombie films because they genuinely scare the life out of me I love zombies. I hate the fact that they walk towards you and go... I've been a if zombie... Could I escape them? I've been a zombie a couple of times on TV. I got shot in the face by the guy from Bad Education. That's my famous zombie moment. Had really cool makeup for that effect. Yeah. The two things I've written are actually going to appear in, hopefully, a spectral vision book called New Gods and Monsters. Oh. So, it's the way to survive life. It really is the way to survive life. I mean, I lost friends in the Soho bombing hmm. in London... And I survived it by writing about it. Because if I didn't, I'd crack up. And then one of my friends from there was kicked to death by homophobics outside a nightclub, who was actually saved people in the Admiral Duncan bombing. And to get over that, I had to continue writing. Because if I didn't, I'd crack up. Yeah. So writing is part of my life. So if it's, if it's caused that type of effect in your life, what goes through your mind when you're, when you're reading these type of poems then? It means that no, it. it becomes a poem I'm reading. It doesn't become reality to me anymore. It becomes something I've created, like Frankenstein creating a monster, yeah. and that's my monster. My name's Anthony Anderson, and I'm the treasurer of the Spectral Vision Society, which is born out of what Colin and Alison were talking before, so I'm sort of the, the next generation of the Gothic student coming through. I did my master's here at Sunland two years ago, and I've come on to do the PhD as well. This year I've started up with a, a couple of other PhD students to relaunch the Spectral Vision Society. It's been a little bit dormant for the last couple of years, not a lot going on around it, so we wanted to bring it back around, give the students something that they can create Basically, the society is centred around the production and the promotion of Gothic in all its forms, be it literary, be it art, be it fashion, be it music. We want to do the whole thing. So the idea of myself, Simone Wood, who's another PhD student and one of Alison's, and Susie Barber, who is also a a PhD student who came through the MA. Um, So the three of us together have brought up the society and basically we want to make something over the next two to three years where the students create a body of work. So they're not just leaving with a degree, they're leaving with actually something that they've created themselves. So we're looking to make the kind of thing Spectral Visions have always been involved with, books, poetry collections, 
but also things like graphic novels because we're in a new faculty. It's the Faculty of Creative Arts and Industries as well. So we want to bring everyone together. So we've got art students who are going to be doing the illustrations. We're going to look to media students to help with radio players, that kind of thing. We want to do anything we can, basically, because there's a lot of resources at the university that we probably haven't used as a society before. So it's bringing everyone together and working along with the staff as well. And we really want to create a community that's creating. You can do via the, the University Student Union website or by our Facebook page, Spectral Vision Society. So even if you're not part of the university, I recommend liking that if you have any interest in the Gothic whatsoever. So how have you incorporated Sunderland into your own creative writing then? Obviously we're all based in the, the city, but we want to introduce students to what we've actually got to offer. So what Rebecca was saying before about bringing in different events to, to promote the, the literature side of things, for example, Brian Talbot, who is an artist from the area, and his wife Mary, who used to work at the university as well, they are graphic novelists now. I'll be meeting with them and they're going to be doing some stuff with the society as well where they're coming in to have talks with the students and show them how to produce graphic novels and things like that. So it's all about finding artists from the area and involving the students with them. So they realise there's a community here. It already exists. It just hasn't been a format for it before. Or certainly, I think like what Steve was saying before, very little was happening 10, 15 years ago. It actually does exist there. There is a music community, there is an arts community, there is a literature community, poetry community. And it's about making sure that students, especially students that aren't from this area and coming into it, they understand that this is a region that creates culture, that creates art. And that's what we're wanting to do with it as well. So making them aware of everything that's gone on. For example, Brian Talbot and Mary Talbot are a great example of it. They did Alice in Sunderland. And I don't think many people realise that Alice in Wonderland was actually devised because of the area of the northeast. A lot of the sites from Sunderland, we have things at the Winter Gardens and Mowbray Park, but people don't automatically associate that with it. But Sunderland was a centre for culture, for arts. It just seems to have, in the public eye, have lost its way. So that's what we're doing with the society. We're bringing all of that together and showing them that this is somewhere that creates and we're going to create it with them. And when they finish their degree, they're going to have that there with them to take off on top of their qualifications. Because a lot of the time, certainly from a creative perspective, you finish your degree and you don't have a body of work there. And I think that's something we can really do and involve the city. Places like Homeside Coffee as well are getting involved. They're going to be hosting movie nights for us, hosting events for writers and things like that. So it's going to be a citywide thing, not just a case of Sunderland Uni and the English department. It's going to be across all disciplines, really, and across the city, hopefully. Marvellous. Excellent. All right, have you got a sample of your work? Well, not my work, no, because I'm not published in Spectral Visions. I only joined on the MA um, two years ago, so I haven't been published in a publication yet. But I thought what I would do is read a little ghost story, since it's Halloween, from one of our previous students, Jade Diamond, who's published in Grimmer Fairy Tales, which Alice and Colin were talking to you about. Because it's Halloween, you want a ghost story, you want a witch story. And Wearside does have a lot of association with witches. Jane Atkinson from my hometown in Washington was drowned as a witch, and if you go to the Washington graveyard now, the church on the hill, you'll still find her tombstone with the word witch engraved on it. You can still go and see that now. In fact, you can find evidence about it on the university website as well. There's stuff on there about the Wearside Witches. Part of this is why I chose this, because it's called The Witch of Hardknot Pass. It is strange to be back near my childhood home of Hardknot Pass. After spending so many years away, I crane my neck to look out of the window to try to glimpse some artefact of my former life, but it's too dark to see outside. My young son, Bartholomew, sits opposite, and I notice he is struggling to stay awake. I used to tell him stories of the magic and fairies from my homeland, but my wife thinks that they've been giving him nightmares. Lately he has been telling her about seeing a headless woman surrounded by dozens of tiny shadows. He tells her that she steals children. 
I thought it strange when she told me this. It was one of the legends of my childhood, after all. But not one I would tell my son. I wouldn't dare frighten Bartholomew with the story of Mildred Phyllis. Mildred was beautiful and married to a prosperous farmer. Many of the village women were jealous and spread rumours about her. There were suggestions that she attained her beauty by less than earthly means, that she had somehow tricked her husband into marriage. Often joining the townswomen in their talk was the village priest. Everyone knew he lusted after Mildred, though of course he could not act on it. He blamed Mildred for tempting him, and his bitter resentment flourished over the years. When her husband and child died in the same year, Mildred received a great deal of public sympathy. Privately, the rumours and gossip continued to swirl. One autumn, the crops failed seemingly overnight. Thick, icy frosts settled on the fields, crushing the delicate stalks. In the field behind Mildred's home, cows lay down and died. A number of children fell ill with fits and fever. The villagers were spooked. Some said Mildred's grief was so deep that she reached out to dark forces to return her family, and that those dark forces were meddling in our affairs as some sort of repayment. After a few weeks, the villagers decided they'd had enough. One night, Mildred was dragged from her home and into the village square. Three burly men stood over her, forcing her neck onto the chopping block. The priest walked from his church, incense holders swinging, dispersing its sickly sweet-smelling smoke into the crisp night air. As he approached the block, he passed the thurible to an acolyte and graciously accepted a pickaxe. It is clearly written in the book of Exodus, he called out to the assembled crowd, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. The crowd gently murmured its assent as he drew up the axe and brought it firmly down on her exposed neck. I was not much older than Bartholomew on that night. Most of what I remember about is likely a fantasy, just bits and pieces that I've picked up each time the story was told and retold during my childhood. What I'm certain of is that she made no sound. She never protested. She never begged for mercy. She never screamed. She was silent. So if, if we want to find any of your published work or any of your students' published work, where can we go? Amazon? Yeah. Amazon? All of our publications are available on Amazon if you just Google Spectral Visions Press. Mm -hmm. Oh, you can also, if you have a look on YouTube at some of the Spectral Visions videos, we had this gorgeous young lad called Rob. He dressed up as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde for a Spectral Visions event and we choreographed it. So Colin came in as Dracula and he was like... Dracula Spectacular. It was Dracula Spectacular we did. And Colin came in and he was like, what are you doing here on my stage? Get off my stage like this. And I'd said to Rob, okay, I want to have this battle between Dracula and Mr. Hyde, the monster battle on stage. Rob was like, okay, Alison, we, we can do that, we can do that. So we had the Jaws music and Rob had the top hat on and he came like up like that. So it looked like the fin of a shark, but it was actually his top hat appearing. Coming up like that. And I'd said to him, right, you need to battle with Colin when you get on, on the stage. And he was like, I can do that. So there's Colin with his big cape on like this. What are you doing? Get off my stage. I'm the premier monster here. And Rob, <laughs> have a look on YouTube for it. Rob got up and walked over to Colin, got his walking cane, hit Colin right between the legs. Colin <laughs> hit the deck and was rolling around on the now, floor. You might have thought it was funny. But... All the A-level students were going, oh my God. 
God, isn't this authentic? Isn't it fantastic? And that's probably been my favourite Gothic moment. It wasn't my favourite Gothic moment. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I can't imagine why. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Happy Halloween, everyone. It's been Happy, Happy Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining our Speak Up Sunderland Halloween special. It was hosted by Betty Ball and Stevie B and produced by me, Jay Sykes. A huge thanks to all six of our guests, members of Spectral Visions Press. You heard Dr. Alison Younger, Colin Younger, Alison's former tutor who we are referring to as the Welsh Wizard, Reuben Blue, Lizzie Hergreaves and Anthony Anderson. Thank you to the engine room at the fire station in Sunderland for allowing us to record in your venue. Do drop in for a drink sometime if you can to support them. And, and you can take my word for this, they do really good vegan hot dogs. (laughs) Our theme tune, which I butchered this week in the name of Halloween, was created by Timecrawler82, and our new logo and branding is by Georges Vinicio. I'm not originally from Sunderland, as you can probably tell by my voice, but I have grown to love this city. This podcast is proudly produced in Sunderland for Sunderland. <laughs>